Welcome to Shelter and Solidarity. I'm your host, Joe Ramsey, as we welcome you into a deep dive with artists and activists during this COVID pandemic, now entering our third month. I'm your host, Joe Ramsey, broadcasting to you via Zoom and Facebook and eventually YouTube here from Dorchester, Massachusetts on the south side of Boston, now into our third month of Shelter in Place. This is our ninth episode of Shelter and Solidarity. Uh, and today our focus is on the pressing theme of repression and resistance, reflections on repression, state repression and resistance, as well as on threats to democracy during the COVID pandemic. Today, I am joined by a special co-host who is actually returning to Shelter and Solidarity. I'd like to welcome onto the program for the second time, Johanna Fernandez, uh, who is a professor at Baruch College in New York City, a scholar of, and activist on the front of mass incarceration, as well as the author of a new book on the Young Lords or Radical History. Johanna, thank you for joining us. Johanna, are you there? You may have to unmute your microphone. Yes, unmute. Sorry. Yes, All right. here I am. Thank yes, you so we very know. much for having me. Great. So glad to have you with us, uh, Johanna. Now, you're in New York City, is that correct? I'm in New York, and uh, there's a lot of noise right now. It's 7 p.m., so we are clamoring and uh, making noise for the medical corps in our city, as I imagine is happening all over the United States right now. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Could you say a little more about what the lay of the land has been like in New York? I know there's, it's been a whirlwind of a week across the country and in New York City in particular. Um, I, have you been out, on the, out to the protests or able to, to view them or just following them online? Uh, what's your take on how uh, things have been developing in New York City the last couple of days? Well, I'm the host of a morning show on WBAI, uh, which is the radical station here in New York City. Um, and uh, following up on uh, uh, the goings on, but I've also participated in the demonstrations. I was out over the weekend. There were tens of thousands of people out in the streets. Uh, there was at once a militancy and determination to fight the repression of the police, but there was also jubilee. There seemed to be, um, a festival of the oppressed, if you will, people who had been cooped up uh, for weeks and weeks and weeks on end were now celebrating because they were out and they were out with a purpose and with a mission after having seen uh, a, the failure of the state essentially during the pandemic. Uh, so people were out not just, I think, fighting um the horror and terror of white supremacy in america in the form of police brutality but they were fighting everything that we've seen in this country since february uh shock after shock of the depravity really of capitalism and its um and its unwillingness to to really meet the most basic of human needs I could talk some more about it, but I just wanted to let you know that there were tens of thousands of folks. We also saw in New York City uh, police repression of uh, an epic kind. Uh, police drove into protesters twice in Manhattan 
and uh, in Brooklyn, and this was captured on camera, uh, on video, and you probably uh, saw the bus speed um, uh, recording of police in which police told each other uh, over their uh, you know, radios to drive over um, protesters. Wow, yeah. That's uh, I did see some of those images. I wonder, Johanna, if in New York, if you're, if you're sensing, here in Boston too, just huge demonstrations. A lot of friends I have who have not gone out to such things before, participating in reporting. Hearing reports here in Boston, maybe as many as 50,000 that attended an, an action a couple of days ago. I wonder if part of the jubilance you're, you're sensing in New York City, uh, is it reflective of the, the fact that people may sense that there's actually been something won is a result of these demonstrations that already we've seen, in fact, some concessions from the state or the, the implementation of charges against the other three officers in Minneapolis. We'll be going to Minneapolis in just a moment to get more detail on this uh, in the sense of, uh, in the sense of, you know, that protest works, right? Well, that, that well I, I don't know that people are thinking that protests work. I think part of what Americans um, are relieved about uh, is that people are fighting back. So just two weeks ago, uh, people were looking around the country feeling that perhaps all white people are in fact a basket of deplorables, right? We had seen white supremacy rear its head across the country as uh, neo-fascist groups descended on uh, the capitals across uh, the nation. We were here in New York City and beyond accosted by white women who had been calling the cops on black people uh, and immigrants, the phenomenon of Karens. Uh, there's the white supremacist in chief. And there was an enormous amount of despair and then Minneapolis went up in flames and a significant number of the people who came out were white. And so that was an incredible relief for me as a black person and I'm sure for people of color uh, and black people and Latinos across the country that in fact, uh, what we had been seeing in the media was, was just an element and a portion of a much deeper and more complex um, story in American um, society and in American history. And so when people in Minneapolis took a stand, led by Black people, but joined by people of all races and especially white people, we began to regain a sense that perhaps we can together fight for um, a truly just world. Uh, so, so we're still in the process of the struggle and the victories um, are not exactly clear, but there's an enormous amount of solidarity that people are responding positively to. For example, uh, yesterday here in New York City, at Times Square, which is like ground zero for New York City life, uh, the medical corps descended at seven o'clock in solidarity with black people. Yeah. And, um, and I posted a photograph of that that was sent to me by someone else. 
and it got hundreds of likes, that sense of solidarity that the bus drivers um, in Brooklyn uh, during the first of the demonstrations here in New York City decided that they were not gonna collaborate with the cops, that they were not going to carry the protesters to jail in their buses. The union took a stand in solidarity with the Minneapolis bus drivers and said, no, we are not going to be utilized um, uh, by the state for the purposes of oppression. We are not going to um, muzzle First Amendment rights. So yeah. uh, we are seeing solidarity. We are seeing an uprising, unlike anything we've seen in American history, I think. Uh, and that is after so many uh, years and months of horror, this is a relief uh, for many. We, we are able, ironically, to breathe um, in this period. Yeah, well, thank you for that, you know, painting that kind of uh, that picture of all these different currents, and I hope we'll get to a number of them today. I mean, Johanna, is just so glad to have you uh, joining as a co-host here, so we'll hear your, your voice and your questions throughout, throughout the next hour. And for all those who are joining on Zoom, we will be opening up for, for discussion with all of you after we hear from uh, not only Johanna, but uh, from our two guests, which I'd like to introduce right now. Uh, the first of which is August Nymphs, August Nymphs Jr., who's joining us from Minneapolis. August, are you there? We, you may need to unmute yourself in order to be heard. I don't know. <laughs> okay, great. Heard and seen. You can only be seen if you're heard. That's the way it works. Okay. August, it's good, good to have you with us. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. August, August is um, also a professor, a professor of political science of African-American and African studies at the uh, University of Minnesota, located in Minneapolis, uh, an author, a scholar who works on issues of political and electoral strategy, as well as Marxism and the thought of Lenin. Uh, is also uh, a coordinator for the Minnesota-Cuba Committee with an internationalist focus there. August, thank you so much for being with us today. And I, I guess I want to start by asking you, uh, you know, what is, you know, your perspective um, from Minneapolis? Uh, how has, uh, how have the events of the last seven to, how would you summarize the, the last seven to ten days? Uh, it's the flashpoint really starting in Minneapolis, though obviously simmering simmering struggle had been going on in many other places as we've learned. Uh, you've written a, a number of pieces uh, in the last couple of weeks, or at least one you wrote, and I've seen you quoted in a Time Magazine article talking precisely about the, the kind of arguably unprecedented or certainly historic multiracial character of some of these, these uprisings, something that Johanna mentioned a, a moment ago. Could you just uh, locate uh, us a little bit in terms of maybe how things seem in, in Minneapolis right now? And if you could maybe walk us a little bit through the last week to 10 days, uh, you know, as Lenin once said, right, there are, there are weeks when centuries seem to happen, uh, as well as centuries when not much seems to happen, to paraphrase. Could you take us to Minneapolis, and then we'll bring in our other guest, Bill Fletcher, uh, uh, after we give you a little chance to unfold your perspective. Yes. Um, as you know, uh, the ceremony, the memorial for uh, George Floyd was today, mainly for the family, but it was uh, broadcast on the mainstream uh, TV and uh, radio. And uh, I didn't get a chance to hear it but I understand that uh, Al Sharpton was the main speaker. And in his remarks, he too commented on the multiracial character uh, of the protests. And I think for many people outside of the Twin Cities, that all seems a bit odd, a bit strange, but it's been that way for a long time. 
certainly since the uh, Black Lives Matter uh, marches that began in 2014, but even way back in 1992, in a demonstration I helped to organize, along with, by the way, uh, the Attorney General uh, of the state of Minnesota. He was one of the key organizers of that protest in 1992 around the Rodney King uh, events. And uh, the majority of those people who participated in that protest denouncing uh, the judgment uh, that exonerated the four cops who, who beat up uh, Rodney King. The majority of that march were also ca Caucasians. Mm -hmm. So there's been a long tradition going back here in the Twin Cities uh, for this kind of solidarity across racial lines. And it's gotten much more cosmopolitan with the large Somali community that's living here uh, in the Twin Cities. So yes, uh, coming out of the, uh, the lockdown, as Johanna put it, uh, last Tuesday, uh, there was a sense of uh, uh, coming up for air. Uh, after having been locked down for two and a half months, you could feel it on the way going to the demonstration zone. Uh, you could sense it, uh, people feeling that they were free at last, free at last, were able to come up for air. And so there was a sense of jubilee along with outrage and people came out and uh, expressed their outrage. And you have to think about it, it was a, it was a degree of consciousness because it meant that we were risking, it involved some risk, health risk, in deciding to, to do this. I'm, I'm a 77-year-old African-American male, so I have to be very careful about my health, but the, but the outrage uh, uh, generated by what we all saw on camera, and I can't stress enough, I can't stress enough that this was captured on camera. This, in the past, oftentimes these things, there's some kind of an ambiguity either the, uh, with regard to the victim or regard to the police and so on, but this was, this was without ambiguity and it was captured on camera. And if you think about it, the only previous thing I think we had like that was exactly the Rodney King, what happened to Rodney King in 1991. And that generated mass protests, but this is much broader. This is much broader. I think the count yesterday in the New York Times, there were 140 more, uh, more cities in the United States and yes, there was a protest and demonstration in Fargo. Yes, that Fargo, Fargo, North Dakota, Bismarck, not North Dakota, uh, Duluth, Minnesota. Yes, so this is much broader. Uh, I think uh, Johanna is, is, is correct. This is, a, this is a tipping point. This is a new development uh, within mass protests. And also significant for me, given what the original topic of tonight's program was going to be, I, I see this as something in which People decided to vote early, to vote with their feet. They didn't wait for November. As we often are told in the history of a mass protest, let's wait until the elections. Let's wait until November. No, people came out and voted early, and they came out and did the most important kind of voting, voting with their feet. So those are just a couple of things uh, I wanted to mention. I think a turning point in the protest here was last Thursday, a week ago, and that's when the uh, uh, the third precinct police uh, uh, office was burned. Uh, I think that was a turning point. And, be, and the ruling class became nervous. And I think this is when the ruling class, liberal Minnesota ruling class decided to take off the gloves because there was a potential that the marchers could march over to the fifth precinct, which was in a, about a mile and a half away. And then there was a fourth precinct up in the predominantly black community on the north side. And at that moment, I think the ruling class, which had been divided, decided they unified 
that it was decided to put an end to this, to put an end to the insurgency, the semi-insurgency that was taking place on the streets. And the fact that the, uh, this was supported in many ways by many people, you may have just seen the recent newer uh, uh, poll uh, by, um, I can't remember the, the journal, but there was a poll indicating that 57% of the public supported uh, the burning of the, of the precinct. <laughs> that doesn't happen often in US politics. And this is when the ruling class became nervous. It reminded me of that moment on uh, January 1st, 1959 in the Cuban Revolution, when the masses came out. They didn't burn, but they took over all the police stations in Havana. And that's because they had a leadership. And so one of the things that's been revealed here, the last thing I just wanted to comment, I think what's been revealed here, and also nationally, internationally, is the need for a revolutionary leadership of the caliber that led the Cuban Revolution in 1959. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great moment to, to pause on and to bring in our next guest, I mean, who's also been thinking about, you know, the implications of this uh, uprising and, and this moment for democracy and the question of rebellion and its relationship to the ruling class. I'd like to bring in uh, Bill Fletcher Jr. Bill, uh, Bill, are you there? Make sure you're unmuted so we can hear you as well as see you. Yes, Bill? I'm, I'm here. All right, great. From the, the galactic standpoint. All right, I love it. Uh, Bill Fletcher, for those who don't know, is, is a radio host himself, as well as a writer and activist, a longtime trade unionist, author, co-author of a number of books, including Solidarity Divided, as well as a novelist with a recent novel, very fascinating novel, The Man Who Fell from the Sky. Uh, Bill, thank you for being here on Shelter and Solidarity today. Absolutely, and as you can see, I'm also a reserve officer in the Klingon Imperial Space Navy. I just happened right. to be more because I well, we may need intergalactic forces at some point. Uh, so, Bill, I mean, I, I mean, I think uh, both Johanna and August have laid out a number of nodes and, and threads already, which I would welcome you to pick up. But I guess I would just like to, to kind of pitch to you a broad question. Um, which is you know, similar to the other two. What is your kind of overall read of the moment we're in right now? What the significance and the meaning of the, this kind of rebellion that we've we've seen kind of breaking out across the country is, and what what the uh, you know the implications are as we as we look ahead, not just towards November, but just towards the kind of the outlook um, of the you know the left in the in the near future here in the United States. What what, what is the moment? How would you characterize? you know, the moment that we're in and, and what it means uh, for those of us wanting transformative change. So 101 years ago, there was a depression. There was a pandemic that was misnamed the Spanish flu. Should have been the American flu. Mm -hmm. uh, there was red summer and it was a red scare. So I, meant, I start there because, you know, people uh, frequently talk about how all this is unprecedented. Well, it's unprecedented for anyone that was born after 1921. That's true. But in U.S. history, it's not. And one of the things that's important about what happened in 1919 that's relevant to today is the convergence of multiple contradictions um, that, that uh, up till 1919, there had been race riots, pogroms against African-Americans started roughly in 1917 with East St. Louis. Um, there were uh, other kinds of economic downturns, but the coming together of several different factors 
created a very unique situation in 1919. I think that's what we got to understand about right now, that uh, when people are saying, well, you know, there's been other examples of police brutality and there's been other uprisings and protests, why now? I mean, why now is in large part because of COVID-19, the economic crisis, the environmental crisis, uh, the several within three weeks lynchings that took place, and all of these things came together. And, um, and, and so I think it's important to understand, thus this created a moment of great instability. Uh, one side note I wanna make, uh, which has to do with my fear right now, is that I fear that a lot of people are gonna come down with COVID. And I'm really, really worried about that um, and, and what the ramifications will be. But I think that the, the intense pressure of all of these things led to an explosion. It was a critical mass situation and, and people rebelled. Um, now, on top of that, th there's a number of interesting things about this moment. So uh, been, some of them have been pointed out. Uh, this is one of the most multiracial uprisings I can remember. Um, but it's also been an uprising infiltrated by the right. And that's not something that's largely been recorded in the past. Uh, usually it's the right just carry, carrying out some sort of attack. But we, we have sufficient evidence of right-wing forces trying to disrupt uh, this and to discredit these efforts along with, I'm assuming, police agents. So, so one of the things that that says to me is that the question of organization becomes critical. That when these upsurges happen, it's, it's really essential that mass organizations jump in, provide marshals, help to organize things, help to identify provocateurs, et cetera, so that the, the, the progressive gist well, essence of these uh, uprisings is, is absolutely clear. Another thing that's incredibly unusual about what we're going through right now is represented by General Mattis and his statement, um, an incredible statement, denouncing Trump uh, that has been followed by other former military people and even the current Secretary of Defense. Um, and this is not what you would expect. So there seems to be the possibility of some level of fragmentation in ruling circles. Now, what will this mean within the Republican Party itself? It's not clear. Um, there have been some statements made by uh, some uh, elected officials from the Republican Party. It's not clear how much people are going to distance themselves from, uh, from Trump. But this is an, an, a really unusual moment. Now, in terms of this last point you were raising about where things are going to go, I'm going to quote from Joe and Lai, who was actually misquoted. Uh, he was asked, what did he think the ramifications of the French Revolution were? And he said it was too soon to tell. Well, it turns out he wasn't talking about the French Revolution in 1789. He was talking about 1968. And, and he said it was too soon to tell what the ramifications are. I would say the same thing. 
I'd say it's too soon to tell and that we can guess a number of different scenarios, but there's a number of things that are possible, both good and not so good. And, and that's again where this question of building organization, taking the demands that are rising out of uh, this movement, demands against troops in our communities, demands for the demilitarization of the police, demands for justice for those who've been lynched, demands against austerity, taking those, popularizing them, and translating them into an ongoing movement. Yeah, I'm gonna ask you later, Bill, to unpack some of those scenarios you see, but I think Johanna has the next question. Okay, well, you know what? I just think, ooh, did I lose everyone? Uh, no. There, you're back. I'm here, okay, great. So I think it's important to really um, itemize what we've identified as important about this moment. I think part of what we're doing is uh, an assessment of the moment in order to put forth um, a strategy, ultimately. Um, so I, I like this combination of social forces that have produced an explosion, I think like no other, um, in American history, in part because yes, there have been pandemics, there have been economic crises, there have been lynchings, um, but there haven't been multiracial responses against white supremacy and police violence in this manner. It's usually black people writing or white people. So riots historically in American history have been hugely, um, hugely uh, divided by race, right? They, they've been segregated. Our riots are segregated, except, except for the 1992 riots, which were bread riots um, in LA. But, but prior to the 1940s, it was white people who rioted and white people essentially lynched um, black people and um in uh, the aftermath of world war ii black people were rioting against police violence and the symbols of uh, of the state um but i, I just want to itemize these these issues that so are so important right now so the pandemic which was predicted but unexpected exposed the barbarism of capitalism and exposed a government that was unwilling to address the most basic of human needs in the United States and that was willing in fact to sacrifice entire segments of the population but wasn't even willing to give PPE and masks to the medical corps. Um, so there was an exposure of capitalism on a very fundamental level. But then there's this economic crisis that followed. 20% um, of Americans are now unemployed, right? There's an economic crisis. People are suffering right here in New York. I reported on a group of about 20 young immigrant men who were starving in an apartment for days. No food during the pandemic. Um, uh, but we also, we also see in the middle of this 
the government essentially giving trillions of dollars to the ruling class, to the, to the big corporations. But we saw, unlike I think any other moment in the recent past, a flexing of the muscle of labor. GE workers essentially protesting, demanding that they be assigned to make masks. What we got a sense of in this period that we hadn't seen before was the power of the working class. When GE workers said, hello, ours, our factories are being shut down, but we can make those masks, we really got a sense of possibility. Amazon workers going out on strike, all of the nurses and doctors who've been um, in, uh, in, in action. And then you have the major contradiction of American freedom which is black oppression, which is important in that it exposes the sins of American democracy and American society, but it also has the possibility of humanizing the consciousness of the nation and propelling people to action, as we saw happening in Minneapolis. Okay, so these are the different strands, um, and I'm sure there are others. The military, crack, the cracks in the military, um, and I would say another very important issue is that Biden, uh, I think, had no snowball's chance in hell in November. But what has happened in American society has completely shifted the terms of political debate. And uh, I just read that uh, Trump's future has completely uh, changed, that his route to 270 electoral votes is almost impossible because there's a shift uh, in consciousness and people who previously were hanging on to him have let him go. So it seems that Biden, whom I do not uh, support, uh, who hasn't said much during the situation, maybe has a snowball's chance in hell um, to win. Uh, so, so that's the, um, so that's the, that's the, the picture. Um, can we, can we talk about labor in this moment? And I know that you've written about this, um, bill. Uh, what is, because we saw it, labor flexing its muscle, um, at Amazon, the, 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 in, in the health industry, um, the bus drivers, but how can we more systematically bring in labor to the table um, in order to produce a strategy that might get us farther than we've been in the past? I think, Joanna, that some of that is beginning to happen. I'm looking at, I've been looking at a lot of statements by unions uh, regarding the Floyd lynching and, um, and other such things over the last several days. And many of those statements are quite powerful. Uh, there was a statement from the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way Employees, uh, which is uh, part of the Teamsters Union. And what was interesting about the statement was an acknowledgement of the white supremacist history of the union, uh, you know, at a point in the past when they and other railroad brotherhoods actively excluded workers of color. Uh, so there is some sort of shift. 
that, that seems to be going on. But I think that there's two things. One is that there remains, despite good statements, a need for a different form of leadership, a transformative leadership. That is a leadership that recognizes that the union movement as it's currently constituted cannot advance, that it needs to transform the way it operates, who it reaches out to, its demands along the lines of what I call social justice unionism. And, and so I think that that's um, a critical feature of, of this particular moment. Uh, the, the, um, I, I'm actually cautiously optimistic though, because I do see uh, this struggle that is unfolding within organized labor around its own future, around its own soul. So I, I think that that's, that's gonna be a, a critical thing. The other piece is that this is a moment when, uh, and I had this discussion with a number of union activists recently that we need a broad front against repression. And as I was saying earlier in my remarks, it needs to be a front that really takes on um, you know, the demand to keep the troops out of our communities and to demilitarize the police. The demilitarization of the police is a mass demand. Masses of people get it. And they don't want an occupation army in their communities. Um, and the issue of justice- It seems that the military lynched. itself doesn't want to do that from what we've seen. Well, no, that's right. But, but the distinction, but it's important though, Jana, that there's different dynamics in the military than in the police. The police oh, yeah. are cultivated to be an authoritarian presence. The military is much more complex given who's in it and for how long. And that's one of the reasons I think that we're starting to see some cracks in the military. Military does not want to, not even leaving aside the Posse Comitatus Act that says that they can't police, they don't want to. They don't see that as their role. So that's something that we have to really be pushing on. But the last thing is about this austerity issue, because we're seeing, you know, in, in, the, in the very beginning of the, uh, the COVID crisis, um, it became clear that money was not an option. Republicans were ready to come up with zillions of dollars, but now they and conservative Democrats are raising the austerity issue. And that is part of the squeeze that working people are facing that leads to these rebellions. We've got to be opposing them and, and labor needs to be at the forefront. Yeah, just jumping in there. I mean, I want to recommend everyone check out Bill's latest piece or the latest I know of, which was in The Nation a couple of days ago on five ways to rebuild labor and transform America. Perhaps the producers can put that in the chat box and we'll put it up on our Facebook page as well. Uh, but Bill, I noticed one of the last, uh, I mean, in short, right, the five things you call for are refuting and opposing social Darwinism and build, having unions cultivate mutual aid beyond just their membership, uh, bargaining for the common good, using collective bargaining to, to leverage broader community demands, such as nurses fighting for their patients, teachers fighting for their students, a coalition against austerity you just mentioned, 
mass strategic or worker or organizing, meaning organizing the, un the unorganized in whole sectors and regions. And then the final one, which is what I wanted to flag now, which is organizing the unemployed. I mean, I just heard today that even the extended unemployment benefits, right, that were one of the concessions we got out of that trillion dollar upward transfer of wealth known as the CARES Act, CARES for whom, I don't know, um, you know, that, that those unemployment benefits are, are slated to run out for many people quite soon. I mean, I'm just wondering right now, imagining the, the mass militancy we have in the, the streets around, particularly around police violence, but as you have all mentioned uh, about more than just that, how that could, what, what would it be like to have, an, have that energy directed also uh, about demand for extended unemployment or permanent unemployment benefits, right? Universal income. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it, that seems to be not just an abstract issue, but a very cutting issue that literally you can, the clock is ticking on people's benefits, assuming they've even received them in the first place. So, I no, mean, that's correct. What's that? That's correct. The problem is it's not going to happen on its own. There's a lot of mythology about what happened in the 1930s. The unemployed movement was initiated by the Communist Party. It was followed up by socialists and Trotskyists and Mustites, but it was organized left forces that dug in and helped to build that movement. You know, expecting as too many people have that the unemployed are simply going to rise up. It, you know, I mean, they may rise up in riots, but in terms of real organization, there need to be forces on the left and forces among progressives that are putting resources into doing this. And this has been something that several of us have been raising for years. In the, in the 2008 collapse and 2009, I had these fights with people around, we've got to organize the unemployed. And I kept getting these really bizarre responses with people saying, well, Bill, do you think it's really time? I, I said, wait a minute, there's an economic collapse. I mean, what do you want to wait for organizing the unemployed until everything is better? Um, and, and there's this, uh, failure to understand timing is everything. This is the time to organize the unemployed. Yeah, 40 million, man. We're, we're waiting for 100 million. I want exactly. to go to August, uh, bring you back in. I know you had a, a comment on the issue of labor and demands. I don't know if you want to speak to the unemployment issue as well, labor's relationship to the so-called surplus labor uh, the system is producing, or if you want to go back to, you know, labor as traditionally understood. But August, take it away. Yeah, I can't. <clears throat> help but uh, comment on uh, something that Bill raised about the unemployed. Yeah, in the strike, in the Teamster strike here in uh, Minneapolis in 1934, that was one of the key things that made that strike successful, organizing the unemployed. That was key. That was key in making uh, what happened here. By the way, the last time the National Guard was in the streets of uh, Minneapolis was in the 1934. Uh, during the Teamster, the Teamster strike. That strike along with the Toledo strike, along with the San Francisco strike and so on, that's what led to the creation of the CIO. So that's, so what's, what's, what's different this time from 1934 Minneapolis is alluding to what Johanna pointed out, is really the multiracial character of this mass, of this mass protest. That wasn't the case uh, in 1934 in Minneapolis. Yes, there was a significant number of Native Americans who were involved in the Teamsters Union, in the leadership and so on. But in terms of what we're seeing today, that's because of the globalization, capitalist globalization, Minneapolis is a much more cosmopolitan international, international city. Let me just 
say that on the unions concretely right now. Uh, this provides us an opportunity to take up the question of police unions. One of the biggest obstacles to dealing with this problem is police unions. That's the case here uh, in Minneapolis. We're trying to understand, make sure you see that map on the front page of the New York Times today. It's a map about Minneapolis and, and all of the abuse that black people suffer here in Minneapolis. Key in understanding that is the, the power of the, of the police union. Uh, the head of the police union has, has not made any amends at all for what, his, for what the uh, police did, what uh, the four police did. He's a defender of their, of their actions. So this is an opportunity to make clear there are unions and then there are unions, and that these police unions have no business. The AFL-CIO has asked for the police, has asked for him to step down, the head of the union, which is, which is a step forward. Uh, but we have to be very clear about that. And just lastly, just, let's not forget the concrete demands around this. And that is, I think of crucial importance is jailing the police. Until the police start going to jail, there's no incentive for this to, uh, to change. Cities keep paying off families, I call it blood money, to settle with the families of the victims. As long as the city authorities are willing to do that, there's no incentive for the police to change their behavior. And lastly, I can't emphasize enough, thinking about the race question, what happened in Cuba. Cuba was a society where there was racial slavery and the police were notorious and vicious in, in Cuba. That was before 1959. It took a revolution to, to get rid of all of that. I can, I speak personally, I, I go to Cuba about once every year. I've interacted with police. It's a very, very different experience. What happens in the United States does not happen in Cuba when it comes to black people. And my Cuban friends have been writing me all week wanting to know, helping them to understand why is this happening in the United States? It's because the Cubans made a revolution. Yeah. Um. August, I'm glad that you raised the issue of the police unions. I think we have to say unequivocally that the police are not part of the working class. The police are an arm of the state. They are there to protect private property. And in the United States, the police emerges as an arm of the slave owning class uh, to essentially return its property uh, back to um, the plantation, its escaped property. Um, so I think we have to ask the question, um, an institution that emerges out of the institution of slavery should not exist in the United States, especially during the year that we gave an award, the Pulitzer, to the 1619 Project. Um, so it's my position that the police shouldn't exist at all. I understand that we're going to need a revolution for that. Um, but at least we must demilitarize the police. And I like the distinction that uh, Bill makes between the police um, as an institution that never in the history of the world has ever sided with the people in a revolutionary situation. The military historically will side with the people and decide not to carry out um, repression but historically the police um, never has. I wanna get back to something that Bill mentioned, which is very important, which is A, that the Communist Party organized the unemployed in the unemployed councils. And out of 
those formations and the demands of those formations, we get unemployment. Um, that's where the idea of unemployment benefits come from. But part of what you raise, which is hugely important, is that the union movement, the labor movement, I would say, needs a new strategy. It needs a more dynamic strategy. It needs a strategy that's less insular um, and that bridges bread and butter issues, workplace issues, wages issues with issues in, in the community. And if we think about what the labor movement in the 1930s had to do in order to be successful is that it had to develop a strategy for a different period. It decided to identify the, um, uh, the industries that it was going to organize, right? Where are we gonna focus our energies? We're going to abandon craft unionism and we're going to in, uh, organize industrial unions and we're gonna uh, organize everybody, but also in the public sphere. The labor movement decided that they were going to launch a media campaign that wedded the idea of American freedom to economic equality. It totally went outside of the organizing and thinking that the previous period of labor organizers had, um, had imagined or envisioned and I really like what you suggest, Bill, because this is what the 60s, the new left radicals and Marxists were trying to do. There was here in New York City, the health revolutionary unity movement, which was essentially a bunch of um, uh, workers in the hospitals, low level workers, technicians who were the left wing of the uh, health movement in New York City that, or that argued that it's not enough to organize for wages, that we have to actually look at healthcare as a crisis of the working class, the unemployed, as a whole of society, and we have to fight for it. Um, and so that really connects with um, the struggle against repression that the union um, you suggest should engage in, but also the exposure of the police union um, as one of the most authoritarian, reactionary, fascist elements of the state that needs to stop calling itself a union, or at least we need to stop calling it a union. So one of the things I'm hearing from a lot of you now, which I think is really powerful and, and provocative, and maybe something about this moment is that just the very fact that we see sectors of the left making distinctions between the different parts of the state, right? And different elements and what might be, where there might be the possibility of splits, right? And defections and where there's not, and, and, and kind of breaking down the state, right? In, 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 a, in a productive way that is linked to a strategy. I mean, a couple, someone in the, um, in the chat has, has asked the question, what could be done now to actually, from a left perspective, from a revolutionary stand, uh, standpoint, to, to lay seeds and, 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 and help to organize the basis of that revolt, the basis of that, those allies coming over in the National Guard, in the, uh, from, from the, the military, right? I mean, of course, we can't depend on just the ruling class itself to split, but to, to, to help it split. I wonder what lessons we have from history and from organizing as to, to how that, when that happens, how it can happen, how it might happen in the United States today, 
Um, and also, frankly, the question of the unemployed, we've all said organizing the unemployed seems fundamental. What does that look like concretely? Um, what are the lessons from the, the 30s, if we want to go there, or from other moments where unemployed councils have, in fact, had some real success at you know, organizing the unemployed as an actual part of a you know, active political radical movement, not just as a service, as recipients of service and aid as a kind of pacifying gesture. So, um, you know, I don't know if you can take, we have the soldiers and the unemployed, two massive groups with very strategic importance right now. I don't know, uh, Bill or August, maybe I, August, could I put that to you and, and Bill as well? Thoughts on either of, of those fronts, what that might mean or what that might entail or what lessons we can look to uh, on either of those uh, historic tasks? August, do you want to speak first or me? No, yeah. Um, so a couple of things. One is that another unusual component of what we've been seeing in the last 10 days is that actually, although I generally agree with what Joanna was saying, we've had splintering among police forces uh, with cops in some cases um, standing down. And I, I, I've never seen that in my life. Um, and I'm about to roll my eyes, Bill, but go ahead. No, it's- Because um, we caught the same cops. The same cops who stood down, mm -hmm. they've also beaten up on the, um, on the demonstrators here in New York City, but go ahead. Well, I mean, maybe that's true and maybe they have split personalities or something. I don't know. I can't diagnose them, but it's happening around the country. And, and I think that part of, uh, part of what we have to think about is that what you do with your opponents is that you give them an opportunity to come over to your side. Um, and it's a tactical matter, it's very complicated, but successful movements have been welcoming to defectors. Um, as opposed to treating the defectors with suspicion. And, and so it's really important that the message that we're conveying is that we represent the majority. And if you want to be on the side of the majority, then you need to be with us. Um, and so that means having a united front approach. It means getting away from sectarianism and self-righteousness. Um, the other thing in terms of the unemployed, is that organizing unemployed is very, very difficult, precisely because people are unemployed. They don't want to remain unemployed. That's not the identity that they see. They see that as a temporary identity until they get a job. And, and so there's multiple levels when organizing unemployed that need to be taken into account. Very basic survival, you know, like food. Another thing is evictions, which is going to become critically important in the United States in the next number of months as people are forced out of their homes. And it gets complicated because when you're dealing with, for example, small homeowners who are renting and they're only able to pay their mortgages because of rent, the question is, what do they do? We need to have an answer for that. And we need to be making demands on the state 
to address the situation so that people don't end up in the streets. Um, there needs to be a renegotiation of debt. And so the unemployment movement is not simply about fighting for jobs, and I'm not trying to minimize fighting for jobs, but it needs to be looking at the, the, the situation facing the unemployed on multiple levels in terms of income, in terms of healthcare, in terms of housing, obviously in terms of jobs, um, and also against police brutality, because as people because, start losing their um, ability to exist, uh, it's going to have all kinds of impacts on folks, including psychological. And so the building of organization becomes critically important. It's not just about building um, uh, mobilizations. It's about building organization. There needs to be a home for the people who are basically being marginalized. And, and here's the final point here. Um, I keep saying capitalism has a genocidal gene. Every capitalism has a genocidal gene in that, um, I don't mean that, I use that metaphorically. Um, I, I mean that capitalism fundamentally as an amoral system does not care about what happens to millions of people. And if millions of people starve and die, as we're seeing, and we've been seeing in the last few months, in terms of the kind of social Darwinism that's been articulated, they don't give a damn. And we're going to have to uh, fight that. That's going to be part of the task of the unemployed movement. Yeah, we might say, I mean, it's been grotesquely on display, right, as the stock market continues to climb, even as unemployment hits 40, you know, it may be headed for 30%, depending on how you count, you know. Um, yeah, I think it's a, a powerful point. We might, might we also say that capitalism and its very drive to constantly revolutionize and become more efficient and less dependent on labor ultimately also sheds, creates surpluses of people it doesn't know what to do with, right? And therefore has to treat simply as a problem to lock up or kill, right? Or just, you know, justify controlling rather than even putting them to productive work. <laughs> Uh, so-called productive work, whatever that counts as in a capitalist society. We have a comrade from Minneapolis who is on the line and has to leave at eight. I want to bring him in. He's uh, Kanishka Chodoroy, um, who's also an author of a great piece in Counterpunch on the issue of the so-called outside agitator. Uh, and uh, Kanishka, before we lose you, I wanted to bring you in and then we will soon welcome other voices. We'll keep the conversation going amongst uh, the guests, but also start to bring in other voices. I see there's been a very active chat Box, so we'll have to find out who, you know, call on people as we go. Kanishka, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Great. Could you, uh, great to have you with us uh, from yeah, Minneapolis, thanks. especially. Uh, what, do you, what do you got? Um, well, I have a couple of comments and, I, and I'll just, just throw those out on the floor. Um, so in the last four years, we've had two very prominent uh, police killings. Uh, one is Jamar Clark and the other one is Philando Castile. And, you know, there were pretty large-sized protests and occupation of precincts and things like that. But this, this is unprecedented. And, and I don't think it's just because it was caught live. Um, I think Philando Castile's death was also caught live and, and, and live-streamed, actually. Um, but what I've seen here is something remarkable is when I walk around my neighborhood and look at the signs on buildings, for the very first time, I'm seeing signs like abolish the police. Um, I'm not seeing just reformists sort of, you know, like just arrest the officers or whatever, um, but actual structural 
understanding of structural racism and understanding of how the system works. I mean, I have, I mean, I'm with Joanna here in terms of seeing that this is, this is really a moment where a totality of state oppression is being revealed. And if the dialectic between the moment and the totality is, you know, if you, if, you, if you can really put that into play here, I think this is kind of where it's working with all its potential and possibility. Um, and the second comment I made, I think August hinted at this, is, is the question of who is going to organize the demands of the state? Who, how do we organize protest outside of a political party? I'm thinking of the Occupy movement, and I'm thinking not so much of Occupy New York, but Occupy Oakland, where um, there was actually a very tenuous, but I thought productive uh, collaboration between the dock workers in Oakland and the Occupy movement. And for a while they shut down the ports and, and there was some real sort of way to uh, collaborate with what the Occupy's uh, demands were with the workers movement. And if we look, I mean, this is one moment where I'm actually thinking a mass strike, a general strike could be a possibility, but can we have such a thing without a political party? Uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be a vanguard party, obviously, but what is the, I guess, what, is the, what is the hope here for, you know, those of you who've done a lot of work with this, uh, do you see any way we can make demands of the state when in a in a situation where there is no organized political party. Yeah, and I, and just to, to add to that, I would just say, I mean, I know having talked with a few of you before the show, that as much as you have great unity on many questions, you also have some differences on on your your thoughts about electoral politics, the existing political parties, inside outside strategies, outside strategies. Kanishka's asking about that outside strategy. It seems like more the outside the Democrats. But uh, I would love to get uh, August's uh, view on Kanishka's question with maybe my addendum. And I know Bill has things to say on this too. And then maybe I know Johanna, uh, maybe you want to take that up too. Uh, I'd love to hear your, each of your views on, on Kanish some version of Kanishka's question. Yes, uh, on the, uh, I'm sorry. On the, uh, first briefly on the unemployed, uh, the details, of what happened here in 1934 can be found in uh, Farrell Dobbs's four volumes on the Teamsters strikes. And one of the things they did, he, he details how they organized the unemployed into their own union. It was an affiliated union. And they organized them to be a part of the strike movement itself. And one of the demands was to increase the relief, the miserable relief wages that they were getting. One quick footnote, we should always remember, especially people on the left, that the first unemployment, uh, the demands for unemployment insurance came out of the French Revolution of 1848. That's where the first time we can talk about uh, unemployment insurance, coming out of a revolution. Okay. Uh, with regard to the uh, police and the situation here in the, twins, in the Twin Cities, yes, it's important that, it, it is true that the Castile, it was on camera, but it was after, remember it. We never saw the actual shooting. We didn't see the actual shooting. And so what happened is that you, the, you couldn't convince a jury that the, cop was, that the cop was wrong, was in the wrong. And so again, the ambiguity, this time is different. This time is much clearer. But I, I, I think 
we, we have to keep in mind if we're going to measure the success of the movement, if these cops don't go to jail, we're not successful. If they don't go to jail, we are not successful. That to me seems to be, has to be the central demand. And this is not certain. The fact that Keith Ellison is heading us up, he's heading up this, make this, this is no certainty about that. Uh, Keith is the attorney general. He's been asked to head this up. We know why, because the governor is looking for cover. They're looking for political cover. He made it very clear, uh, the problem of trust. And they see Keith is providing political cover. So it's going to be important on us to keep the demand to jail to jail the police. Keith and I go way back. Uh, we participated in many, many police anti-police brutality work, and we always had a big difference. He thought that he could be effective by going inside the system. And here in Minnesota, I meant the Democratic Party. We call it officially the Democratic former Labor Party. He and I differed sharply on that question. He thinks he could be effective by going within. So we'll get a test. His, his perspective will be tested, whether or not he will get a conviction. But the only way that will happen, I argue, is if we stay in the streets. And that's what, that's what he, by having him head up the inquiry, he, his purpose is to make sure that we don't go to the streets. And it will be crucial for us to take to the streets. Lastly, always remember the Twin Cities are sort of the bastion of liberalism. They've been, the Democratic Party has been in power for the last 75 years, if not longer. The uh, same thing in St. Paul. And if you look at that map on the front of the New York Times today, and what happens to black people with the police and so on, it raises all kinds of obvious questions. What difference does it make that black people inside the Democratic Party? Yeah, I mean, I think this question of inside-outside strategies also transitions well to, to, you, to you, Bill. Bill, would you take that up a little bit? I mean, this question of how do you see the relationship between the street work, the street organizing, the labor organizing, and the electoral front, uh, you know, looking towards November and beyond. Uh, I know you, you, you have a lot to say on this, but we, I think it's important. Um, the Democratic Party and Republican parties, they're not political parties. They are electoral alliances. And one of the mistakes that we make uh, on the left is thinking about them as if they're political parties. Um, and as if it's like the British Labour Party or the French Socialist Party or the, uh, you know, whatever. That's not what they are. The US electoral system is highly undemocratic and it has, as a, pre a so-called presidential system, it has encouraged the creation of these party blocks. And, and uh, as my friend Carl Davidson has pointed out, there's probably what you could identify as six political parties that exist within those two so-called parties, the Democrat and Republican Party. Um, and so to me, the issue is this is a battlefield. That's what it is. Um, and depending on where you are, uh, you're looking at the balance of forces. And the, to me, it's working both inside and outside of the Democratic Party. And that means a couple of different things. It means a combination of street activity, um, 
electoral work, some of which will be in the Democratic Party and some of which is not. Now, you know, it's, it's really interesting because uh, on the political right, back in the late 60s, the architects of the new right, Richard Vigory and Paul Weirich and others, had this fateful decision that they had to make after the defeat of the uh, Goldwater campaign. And that was whether to form a new party. And George Wallace had been talking about forming uh, this thing, the American Independent Party. And Weirich and uh, Vigory made a decision to go into the Republican Party and to build organization within the Republican Party to basically do battle with the forces within the Republican Party that they saw as liberals. Um, and, but what's interesting about what they did is that they operated both inside and outside of the, of the Republican Party. They in, engaged in building incredible mass struggles, reactionary mass movements against abortion, against busing, in favor of guns, against the Panama Canal, et cetera. And they did all this mass activity. They engaged in legal challenges to progressive victories that had been won. They engaged in various kinds of legislative work. Um, we, on the left side of the aisle, are to a great extent reticent about that, and that we also have a tendency to look at elections as about personalities, as opposed to about opportunities. So it's a, it's a strategic difference. Thanks for that, Bill. Johanna, would you like to speak to that? Um, I think that uh, I agree with the last person who spoke, the comrade from Minneapolis, who might be gone now because it's past eight o'clock, who He's said still here that, He's hanging out, yeah. That there's a, there seems to be, at least within um, a segment of the people who are coming out, a structural critique of the crisis of the police. The... The call to abolish the police, which at some previous moment was descabellado, was like a hairy proposition that would have gotten you laughed out of you know a meeting, is on the table. People are that's part of what people are calling for at demonstrations. So that that's not insignificant. That's important. The question is, where does our power lie, um, Bill? I mean, there is a completely different uh, atmosphere within which to operate politically because people rebelled on a mass scale and burnt down a precinct. And so I feel that a moment like this comes two times in a century, maybe. Maybe this actually doesn't come. When was the last time? So the question is, what do we do with this moment? I think that we need to organize if, we're, we, if we had the capacity as the left, of course, the left was decapitated in the 1960s, repressed homicidally by COINTELPRO, and we're still living with the, um, with the fallout of that. But really, this is the moment to organize independent revolutionary organization. I looked at tens of thousands of people, young people, excited, fighting the police, thinking, we need political education. We need a culture of resistance. We need 
demands. Demilitarize the police. Actually, we don't even have to have that damn demand. LA has already done that. The, the, the city council, you know, in LA is already saying we're gonna chop the budget of the, of the cops by $150 million. That's what the politicians um, do when we threaten to bring their apparatus down. They start chasing their tails and figuring out how to throw reforms at us so that people can go home. I think we need to organize this sentiment. I think, I think we need to organize a revolutionary party. If capitalism is genocidal, and people understand that because nothing like the pandemic and like both Democrats and Republicans kind of being okay about people dying on a mass scale. I live in New York. So here in New York, we had body bags aplenty. And I don't know if you saw the circulation of those images of the body bags that, that we didn't know where to put. Um, so we saw that here and people saw that here and that's imprinted in people's understanding of our system. And people know the young generation of people who are coming into a new world, who are not jaded, who don't know the past, who don't know um, the shortcomings of the left, they're, they're like, yeah, this system is illegitimate. This is a failed state. And the cops are animals and let's fight them. The question is how, okay, but we need to go beyond that. We need, to, we, need to, we need to use the power of the working class. And ultimately we need to tear down the state. Last time I checked, the only uh, project uh, capable and willing to do that is a revolutionary party. And I'm waiting to join a revolutionary party um, worthy of the name, led by people of color. Which hasn't happened very often in American society. Um, but, alongside of our white comrades, for sure. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think this is a moment. I think that we need a lot more of those young people who are out in the streets in these conversations with us. Um, those of us who've been on the left for some time, on the organized left. So I'd like to welcome uh, August, I think, is signaling he wants to speak to this, and I imagine Bill does too. Um, and there's a lot on the table here, but I think this is important. Uh, yeah, go ahead, August. I just wanted to say that uh, a little bit about Minnesota, an important aspect about Minnesota history. Minnesota was the only state where the working class had its own political party, and it actually won the governorship four, four times in a row, between 1930 and 1938. Was, that's when it used to have two, two years. So it was an independent, it was called the former labor party. It was unique right. in the United States. And it was uh, independent until 1944. That's when it went inside the Democratic Party. That's when the merger came in 1944. That was the inside. <laughs> and once the labor movement went inside the Democratic Party, it became increasingly irrelevant, increasingly irrelevant. And that's the reality of, I argue, of the inside-outside strategy. We have to ask, what do we have to show with the inside-out strategy, outside strategy? Okay, so inside-outside, you're saying- We had elements of that here in New York too. Yeah, With the I Labor know. Party, absolutely. So the contention here is that the inside-outside really just pulls the outside in, inside and 
and negates its potentially uh, more transformative force. Bill, how do you respond to that? I mean, you clearly have laid out a position that involves uh, an inside-outside strategy. How do you see that working in practice? How does a transformative or revolutionary politics maintain itself as such while still engaging with these, you know, inside Democratic Party forces? Well, part of my answer not to be a smart ass is that neither of us have won. Um, and, and so I think that, that there's a little bit of humility that's necessary among all of us to try to figure out what worked and what didn't in the strategies that we've uh, been advocating for years. Now, as someone who's been radical since the age of about 14, um, I am certainly not going to disagree with Joanna about the need for a radical project. But I don't see anywhere in any of the things that I've ever learned as a radical where that is inconsistent with a uh, project that engaged uh, the fight for significant reforms, including what we were talking about earlier in terms of unemployment. So do we need a radical project right now? Absolutely. And a number of us have participated in things towards trying to build radical projects. Um, some organizations that call themselves parties, some organizations that thought of themselves as parties, other organizations that were uh, trying to build United Fronts in the left. So those efforts, those efforts towards a radical project, an anti-sectarian mass radical project, absolutely we need that. But we also have an, a very immediate question, which is that in a few months we have some elections coming up. And there are some decisions that have to be made about those elections and about who is going to, for example, make the next Supreme Court appointments. Uh, who's going to be appointing who to the NLRB? And those are issues that are critically important. Um, and, and so I think that these are things that we on the left have to balance at all points. Um, one of the problems with inside-outside work has been where people have been seduced as we saw in the Jackson campaign of 88, after a very successful campaign, we saw how people around Jackson were seduced into the, into the mainstream of the Democratic Party. And that, in my mind, is an argument for why it's critically important to build a coherent left as a counter to that seductive process, which is incredibly powerful. Okay. So, I mean, one, it's interesting. We're, we are now over an hour and 15 minutes into the show, and I don't know that the word Trump has actually been spoken maybe once. I mean, I, I, I kind of wonder, in light of these, in, these insurrections, these rebellions, uh, you know, one person in the chat wants to know, should we call them riots or is that the enemy's term for them? But nonetheless, they're being called riots, rebellions. How does the Trump regime look similar or different? I mean, I think a couple days ago, some pe I was on a call and some people felt like, oh my God, Trump's calling out martial law and we're about to go into full-blown fascism or something. And, and then people defied the curfews and now it's like Trump looks like a paper tiger, maybe with the, his own forces turning against him. I mean, so I'm just curious, how does the Trump regime itself appear differently uh, in, in our relationship to not just the Trump regime, but the Trumpist movement, if you can call it that? I mean, does it, does it seem more sinister and more critical to remove it? Even, does Biden look more palatable in this post, you know, uh, you know, this, uh, this after the last 10 days, or does it now seem like it doesn't matter who's in there because the people have the power? 
I don't know, um, you know, maybe we can go back to August and Johanna and, and Bill, and then, then we'll open it up to uh, broader, you know, the broader audience here. But I don't know, do you, people want to speak to this at all? I mean, uh, does Trump look different now? Uh, I mean, I'm sure he does, or Trump and the phenomenon of Trumpism, but I'm, I imagine you each have a different take on that. August, would you take that? Well, I call people's attention to an important fact. In 1963, the Kennedy administration mobilized thousands of troops on, on August 28, 1963, because of the March on Washington. They thought it was going to be a violent action. And so the 82nd Airborne and all kinds of troops were brought in far larger than the 1,600 troops that uh, Trump put on notice, in which he's already withdrawing. Trump is always more theater than substance. He's always more theater than substance. And we always have to keep our eyes on what the masses are doing. And the mass peaceful mobilizations, to me, that, this is what's significant. Thank you, August. Bill? Oh, Johanna? Johanna and then Bill? So this is the thing. I think part of the problem with electoral politics and the inside-outside and um, mainstream party building is that ultimately it's organized around the idea of handing over your power to someone else so that they could carry out the work of history for you, which is not going to work, which hasn't worked, which has let us down a really, really bad road. It's actually gotten us Trump. Um, what is beautiful about this moment is that people are beginning to see and taste the beauty of their power. And ultimately, that's what we want at every turn, to strengthen people's confidence in their ability to act on society and transform it collectively. And that, uh, my friends, has gotten us a situation in which Trump will not cancel the fucking elections. Trump, and if he does, it seems that his military core is going to rebel. So Trump has make, been making noises about, about this. Well, maybe I'll stay here forever. Um, we, he's going to shut down the USPS, the postal office before um, election time. And, and now, because of a rebellion, because of a crisis uh, in their own government, because, because the ruling class is divided and is not able to rule as it had in the past, in part propelled by the burning up of precincts, and I'm not for nonviolent, um, uh, whatever that means. Like the violence was perpetra is perpetrated against us daily, but also we need to talk about the massive violence of war that we deploy. That's violence. The evisceration of Iraq and Afghanistan and Latin America. That's violence. Um, we are fighting for our lives is what we're doing now. So long story long, I think that, that this is a moment to really encourage and facilitate uh, and water um, the power of ordinary people to transform the political landscape, which is already happening, 
And part of what we've seen happening at these demonstrations, and I was at one for over seven hours, is people who have absolutely no political experience taking the bull by the horn and leading um, an attack against, a, a, a defensive posturing against the police who's attacking us. I mean, it's incredible, but that person, that woman that I'm thinking about, who got at the front of a line of people who were battling the cops, um, I don't know where that woman is. I don't know if she's attached to organization and if her leadership is continuing to be, um, I think that more elections, which I believe if we continue on the ground, um, we are going to shift even the Republicans to the left because already some Republicans are saying, there's one Republican who's saying, oh, all the Republicans need to lose because if they don't lose, we're going to lose the state. We're going to lose the union. Um, uh, what we need to do is, is organize and focus um, our demands and our strategy uh, because this moment is not coming again. So We've got a window of opportunity. Yeah, Bill, I want to hear your response to that. I also would like to welcome everyone uh, in the chat box to add your questions. I think we have one coming up from Tim. And I think this question of demands, what are the demands? Uh, what are the demands and also what are the targets, too? I mean, we started to get at that with police unions. It's not only about what we call for, but who we see as recognizing as the things that need to be uh, dismantled or whatever. But Bill, let's let you uh, respond to August and, and, and Johanna as well. And then we can, do you want to broach the question of demands you think that are emergent already? I mean, we don't just, of course, intellectuals don't just voiced demands on the masses, but listen to what's going on and see what we want to uphold, right, and, and amplify. Uh, so if you want to broach the question of, dem of demands, Bill, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, but maybe you want to respond to what's- Yeah, um, I think it's wrong to counterpose electoral work and, and mass action. Um, uh, as I like to say, if elections weren't important, the rich wouldn't vote. And, and I think that we have to um, understand that, that there needs to be tactical flexibility um, uh, and, a rec and a recognition of understanding the moment and what's involved in the moment. So to me, it's not elections versus non-elections, um, unless you're in a revolutionary situation. Um, and even then, uh, it's, the, it's the sort of the balance between, between them. To the specific question of Trump, um, we're facing a grave danger from uh, a right-wing populist mass movement. So November is not an election between Biden and Trump. It's really an election um, uh, against a right-wing populist movement that happens to have this individual, Trump, as its current spokesperson. Um, it is a very large mass movement that probably has about a quarter of the electorate, who I describe as zombies, and then uh, around them a periphery. Um, and the, uh, this mass movement has a um, armed wing. And we saw evidence of that in these armed demonstrations that were taking place in state capitals. Um, and so we've got to figure out how do we isolate them? How do we eliminate them? 
because these forces are not interested in having debates with us. They're not interested in waiting for their turn. They're interested in annihilating us. And, and what kind of broad front do we need both in the election and after the election? And then after the election, depending on who wins, <clears throat> how do we continue to press? How do we take advantage of the energy that has been growing since, you know, over the last few years and been crystallized in the last uh, 10 days? How do we take that energy and push even further? And those are going to be issues of strategy and organization that we're going to have to deal with. So I think, A, we don't count opposed elections in non-electoral work. Um, we obviously need a very well-organized left, and right now we don't have one. Uh, we have a lot of cries in the wilderness. And one of the big dangers in the absence of organization is demoralization. And that's something that we on the left have to pay attention to because you can see that throughout history when there have been great upsurges and when there's the, been the absence of organization, it's very easy for the other side to take advantage of that uh, to our disadvantage. Okay, I want to, I know we definitely have, uh, it looks like August wants to respond. August, can I bring in a couple folks from, uh, uh, you know, if you have a brief response, August, we'll go to you and then we'll go to, we're going to go to Bruce and then we'll go to Tim with some questions about uh, demands and transformative revolutionary versus reformist demands. Uh, August, do you want to respond? Yeah, Len Lenin taught us the difference between revolutionary parliamentarism and reformist parli parliamentarism. That is, elections are not an end in themselves, but elections are a way to make the revolution. You use elections for propaganda purposes, to count your forces in order to determine when to take power. Lenin explains that in left-wing uh, left communism. So there's a difference between using elections as an end in themselves and using the elections as a way to make a revolution. He, he makes that very clear. So he, did, he didn't counterpose the two, but he made clear that you use elections not as an end in themselves, but as a means to an end, to count your forces, to get out your ideas in order to determine when to launch the armed struggle. Okay. Can I say something very quickly? Sure, sure. The thing is, August, that Bill is not saying that elections should be an end unto themselves. The problem is that we do not have the power, because we are so weak, to use elections as a platform wherein we advance our revolutionary ideas. That's just not an option for us. So the question is, where do we put our energy? And historically, as, as, as early as the last damn election, the election and put, getting people out, getting out the vote has pretty much killed our movements every single time in the recent past, every single time. And the thing is that this moment is not gonna come again. But, but what I'm, what, okay, I'm gonna let out someone else speak because I, people, I, others need to come in. I, I totally agree, John. And that's why I'm saying if we can't, if, these, if we can't jail these cops with the, all of the energy, energy that's in the streets right now, we won't be able to go forward. This is the and real and test. Also, Make sure the cops go to jail. The neo-Nazi right, the neo-Nazi right is not going to go off into the night because someone else is in power. 
It's going to go off into the night when we fight them in the fucking streets as we're fighting them now. So on that note, I want to call attention. We are at almost 8.30 and I know that Bill needs to leave at 8.30. I wanted to thank Bill for being here. I'm going to, if it's okay with people, I'd like us to go 10 more minutes and hear a few more um, comments from folks on the line uh, who are on the Zoom, maybe 15 minutes if people can indulge. I think this is, a, we've had a, the table has been set in a very rich way here. Bill, do you have a sign off note you, before you gotta go here? I hate to lose you, but I, I respect you being here all this time. So uh, you want a, a closing word, Bill, briefly, and then, uh, and then to Bruce. Um, you know, a closing word. The closing word is that um, we, one of the things about this moment that we on the left particularly should be concerned about is not falling prey to uh, despair and apocalypse, uh, which has been a character of a lot uh, that has been written uh, over the last several months about the, the current situation. Uh, that part of our job is to instill hope and, and central to hope is building organization because you can have these kind of upsurges as history has demonstrated. And in the absence of organization, they will decline and the other side will take advantage of that. And so it makes it urgent that we understand the nature of this moment and, and proceed forward. Okay, thank you for that. Thank how you do, very much. How do we sustain hope and, uh, and, this, and the energy even after the immediate upsurges wane? We'll say bye to you, Bill, but not to the rest of you. I hope if you can stay with us for a few more minutes. Uh, and I'd like to call Bruce into the conversation. Bruce has, asked, has a question about reforms versus revolution. Uh, thank you, Bill. Uh, Bruce, are you Bill. there? Yeah, thank you, Bill. Um, so I'm part of a rank and file group within United University Professions, a, a union of faculty and professionals in the SUNY system. We've been inspired by RAFA, which is the rank and file action group within PSC CUNY. Um, and um, we've been trying to organize academic workers, right? So one question that arose as we were working on our statement um, was, what reforms are reformists that we should just reject out of hand? What reforms should we call for that are kind of tactical and non-reformist reforms? What are truly transformative or abolitionist kind of maximalist demands we should be making in this moment, um, specifically around police violence, around uh, incarceration over education, you know, over these kinds of issues that we think can become a spark for organizing academic workers. Thank you, thank you, Bruce. To add on to Bruce's comment, I wanna get, I wonder if this is an opportunity to unpack what we mean by abolition or Johanna or August, I, I don't know if you, August, if you claim that, uh, that uh, abolish the police too. I think sometimes that, that term is used and people who may be listening may not uh, be confident what, what, what that means, but uh, just adding that on to Bruce's comment. Uh, Johanna or August, would you like to take that? We, we mean the end of, the poli of policing. Uh, his, his police are relatively recent uh, entities in human history. Uh, as our prisons, we don't need them. And the abolition of police and the abolition of prisons raises questions about how we wanna organize society and what we wanna prioritize. Do we want to eliminate 
um, the conditions that produce despair? Um, do we want to build hospitals and jobs with dignity uh, and community centers, or do we want to throw people away in prison? Um, and do we want police, uh, especially in a country like this one, uh, police, police are about protecting private property, right? Part of what is fascinating about this moment is that white people who have a very different relationship with the police than people of color and black people in particular are seeing firsthand who the police are because they're being beaten um, by them uh, uh, in, in really horrific uh, ways. So um, in many ways, the police are showing their ass and radicalizing a whole generation um, of young people. What we mean by abolition is an end to, um, and there are alternatives um, to, to both. Uh, that are rooted in community and um, resolution of problems rather than punishment. Um, right. And in this case, the, um, uh, the killing of people um, in the street. Absolutely. I think that last part about the alternatives, right, th that would make, that would actually resolve the social problems rather than just hitting them on the head and locking them up, right, uh, is, is so key. Uh, August, I don't mean to—I didn't mean to hijack Bruce's question with just abolition. He asked a broader question about um, reformist versus transformative or revolutionary demands related to policing, but beyond. Uh, speak to this, please, August. Yeah, just first uh, to what Johanna just raised. Uh, there's a new poll from Monmouth University poll that's just been released a couple of days ago about attitudes toward the police. That is, do people think that the police are excessively brutal when it comes to black people? 57% of the public thinks that's the case in this latest poll. Four years ago, that same question was asked, only 34% of the public thought that was the case. 57% of the public thinks that's the case today. It's exactly because people saw it on camera. It was live and it was clear what was actually taking place. Secondly, on the police, even in revolutionary Cuba, they are police. In revolutionary Cuba, they are police. The difference between the police in Cuba and the police here is that the police in Cuba serve the, serve the people of Cuba. The police in Cuba do not serve a ruling class. They're not there to serve and protect property of the, of the rich. I, I know that, I've seen it, the police operate uh, uh, within Cuba. I lived in Cuba for about six months in 2007. And when I moved there, there was a discussion going on in the United States about snitching. And the police here were trying to encourage people to snitch. If they see something wrong in the community, to snitch. So I asked the Cubans, is there such a thing about snitching? What do you all think about snitching? They had no idea what I was talking about. And I had to explain to them. And that is, if you see something wrong in the community, will you tell the police? They said, of course we will. We'll tell the police. That's because they don't see the police as an occupation force within their communities, which is the case here. So yes, even in a revolutionary society in Cuba, you will need the, you will need the police. The question is, whose, whose interests are served by the police? That's the key question. Yeah, and I mean, I wanna call attention to August's a great piece in the, is it the Minneapolis Post? I know it's the Min Post. Min Post, uh, yeah. Which, and I wanted to quote a line from that I saw actually. Interesting, your quote from a, a policeman's analysis of the police where he admits that the heart, quote, the heart of the, this is from the former head, 
or a former head of the Minneapolis police. The heart of the problem of both crime and police abuse is our tacitly accepted, uh, I'm sorry, is you know the tacitly accepted class structure along with the, the systemic racism that people don't want to acknowledge. And then you add to that quote, only with the dismantling of class society and its inevitable inequalities is a real solution to policing uh, these kind of police abuse issues you know, uh, possible, which to me struck a chord and it fleshes out the, the, maybe the, the negative space of abolition, which is to say, addressing the class character of society itself. And not to put words in your mouth, but that sounds where you, like where you're going with that. Yeah, that, that police chief, his name is Tony Boozer. He used to be, before he came to Minnesota in 1980, he was the uh, head of the police, so he, he was in the Bronx. He was in the Bronx. He had been in Philadelphia also. And uh, by the way, the only time I've lived in Minnesota since 1971 as an African-American male, the only time I've ever been threatened by the police, the only time I've ever been threatened was by Tony Boozer, <laughs> who was the head of the police chief. I was at a social event in his house, and he actually tried to goad me into fighting him. That wow. was in his house. It was a social event. That's the only time I've ever been threatened by the police. Wow, that's quite, a, that's quite a story. I'd like to hear more about that one sometime. We actually have another question online from Tim. Uh, Tim, and, and I, maybe we could take one less if anyone else would like to. It looks like Mark wants to ask a question. Let's take maybe both at once, and then we could go back to both uh, to August, and if Johanna would like to respond as well. Uh, what you got for us, Tim? Thanks, Joe. August, the issue that I struggle with is that I think the majority of Americans I still believe that capitalism is sort of normal, God-given, inevitable system. And the class system is just the way it is. And so how do you open their eyes to the, that it's an artificially built system that's cruel? How do you open their eyes? And so I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about why can't we support socialist candidates like social Democrats, like the gentleman running in Vermont, on a green ticket in a local election to at least open people's eyes to some degree, but we don't have to stop there. You know, in other words, reform progressive candidates on a local level. Can't we, can't we use them to help at least start to open people's eyes because they're so one to the capitalist ideology. Okay. I want to also get Mark here before we come back to, uh, to, to uh, August and, and Johanna. Mark, you there? Uh, yes, I had more. Uh, can you hear me, Joe? I can, yeah. We can okay. see you and we can hear you, Mark. Thanks. This was you. more oriented towards uh, when Bill Fletcher was here, but I think it also ties into the sort of community response in Minneapolis and the way that, that we can reorganize. Are there ways to organize geographically in community um, in terms of also reorienting the political lines of organized labor? And I was thinking of them, we were talking about reorganizing labor to some degree, and I put this in the chat. Would the Chicago Teachers Union's rank and file caucus, who defeated Rahm Emanuel's administration in a strike that was said to be unwinnable, uh, Rahm Emanuel even bragged that they would never even be able to call a strike, and they did so through a significant kind of community and justice outreach, and even one demands that were illegal for them to strike for. And have we seen this, have you all seen this repeated in some of the more recent teacher strikes like West Virginia and Oakland in particular, which was connected to organized labor as a strategy for the left to move forward, not to leave labor behind, but to use labor to make a broader 
uh, agenda in certain respects. Um, yeah. And I would love to hear August's response. That's great. Yeah, I think Bill talks about it in his article about uh, bargaining for the common good, right? That idea of, of making community demands part of labor movement, uh, bargaining uh, demands and how that changes the whole field. August, you want to take that? And Johanna, would you like to speak to that as well or, uh, or yeah, either yeah. of those questions? Sure. Go ahead, August. Yeah. yeah, I think of the teacher strikes, West Virginia was the best. It was clearly the best of the teacher strikes. And what I mean by that, it was, it was broad. It had broad community support. The teachers understood for it to be effective, they had to reach out to their communities. They had to make sure the kids were taken care of. They had to have the cooperation of parents. And so in every, in every county within West Virginia, it, it, one of the most remarkable things about the West Virginia strike, remember it was illegal. It was an illegal strike, <laughs> but there was no sheriff in West Virginia who was going to arrest any of the teachers exactly because the teachers had such broad support. So it's, it was, to me, it was the model. It was the model of all of the uh, teachers unions. The teachers understood it wasn't just about labor issues. It couldn't be seen that way. It couldn't be seen just about labor issues. It had to be uh, seen as the teachers were concerned with the larger welfare of their, of their communities in ties with, with uh, parents, teachers associations, uh, and so on. So I think it's the best. With re do you want me to reply to Tim? Yeah, uh, sure, and then we'll go to Johanna, yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, Tim, uh, yeah, I'm not so sure people are waiting to <laughs> capitalism. <laughs> At least I don't see it amongst young people, not the students I have in my classes, and that's supported by all kinds of, all kinds of uh, public opinion polls. Uh, people, many young people know that if you're born after 1980, you have less of a chance of having the same uh, income as your parents, anybody born after 1980. And that's all very clear. And, and it's, my, my students knew that before the Great, before the great Depression. <laughs> then coming out of the Great Recession, yeah, their life chances and opportunities. Yeah, so yeah, the Bernie Sanders phenomenon was a, was a reflection of the fact that uh, people have given up, and if they haven't given up before, given what they're going through right now, given what they're going through right now, yeah, and the capitalists know this. Just think about the capitalists in this statement they came out with recently about the shareholders versus stockholders and so on. This was a reflection of their fear. So yeah, I don't, I, yeah, the cap, capitalism is teaching people the facts of capitalism. We can't, we, you and I can stand on a corner and say whatever we want and so No, it's what, it's the reality of capitalism and so As far as supporting socialist candidates and so on, the question is whether or not, are those candidates conducting a campaign that actually leads to independent working class political action? That's the test. I would support any socialist candidate there who's there, who's promoting, who has, whose campaign is about independent working class political action. All right, thank you for that, August. Uh, Johanna. Uh, yes, on the question of the unions, um, the teachers in Chicago were phenomenally successful, as were the teachers in Virginia. And I think that we are, the union movement is missing an opportunity at this moment with healthcare workers. Healthcare workers have been through the war. They've seen it all. Doctors who make half a million dollars um, have been uh, exposing capitalism and the horrors 
of the system in which we live, I think there is an opportunity because these workers in two months or three months time are gonna start taking stock of everything they've been through, that they are in a perfect situation to be organized, not just to transform the workplace, but also to fight for um, healthcare for all. That is, that is an obvious um, uh, uh, strategic site of organizing and union resistance that can bridge work the workplace um, with community issues and a broader um, politics for the greater good. Um, I think that we need to start identifying those sites, um, those sites of, of, of labor um, that are strategically situated that can help us essentially establish a culture of critique of capitalism and resistance. Um, I also want to say, um, just reiterate that the police um, are essentially there to mitigate the social tensions and conflicts that emerge in a class divided society. They're there to um, control the people at the bottom of society and keep them in their place. Um, on the issue of, uh, you know, capitalism and do Americans see capitalism as a problem, someone said that they don't. And I just want to reiterate what August Mintz said, which is that there are statistics that over 50% of uh, people under the age of like 28 believe that socialism is a good thing and that capitalism is a terrible thing. I think the problem is that most young people, because of McCarthyism um, and the long histories of Red Scares, don't know what socialism is and what it would take to bring about socialism. And I think that in fact, social democracy of the Bernie Sanders kind is misleading because it suggests that we can legislate socialism. Socialism cannot be legislated. It needs to be fought for on the ground. And it's, as you know, a system wherein workers own and control the means of production and uh, run society in the interest of humanity, not in the interest of profit. That's not going to come about through a conversation with capitalists over tea and crumpets. It's gonna come about through a revolution. Um, and uh, social Democrats believe that we can in fact tinker with capitalism and make it better. Um, and in fact, historically, when social democrats have taken the helm of revolutionary situations their willingness to compromise with the opposition with capitalists have created mass um uh counter-revolution that have uh ended up with the uh, evisceration and mass deaths of of people uh of of of, of revolutionaries of protesters of people in society. I'm thinking of Chile um, uh, and, other, uh, and other examples. Um, and just finally, I want to say that um, 
you know, there's a shift in consciousness. The reason why Bernie, there was a Bernie Sanders phenomenon was not because of Bernie Sanders. It was because of the 2007 recession and Occupy Wall Street, which essentially made it popular and acceptable to critique capitalism in American societies. Something that had not previously um, happened. I think that what is a major barrier in the United States to seeing um, possibilities beyond capitalism is racism. Racism and crime and blaming black people and immigrants has essentially become a balm for a lot of people in America, including working class white people who see the problem as um, those other people and not the people on top of society. So I think that the fight against neo-Nazi white supremacy and anti-immigrant um, sentiment uh, is critical to um, offering uh, a much more accurate analysis of what's going on in American society and what the problems are. And that's part of the route or, or, or route um, to a different alternative consciousness that will lead to um, to the birth of a new system that uh, I, I call socialism, one in which um, we, we, we are civilized in our organization of society and in meeting its human needs. Yeah, Johanna, that's a powerful, I think, note for us to, to wrap up on here. I mean, I think you, you make, make it so clear why, in a way, uh, taking on policing and, and the dehumanizing practices and imprisonment is so key because it precisely functions to try to take a core part of society and treat it like it's not part of society and hide social issues by criminalizing people and locking them away and racializing them as if they're not truly human beings and, and, and thus putting off, right, the, the urgent need to, to develop a society that can truly treat all human beings as human beings and meet all needs instead of, instead of you know, cordoning off, you know, 20, 30% of humanity and never allowing their, their basic human needs to even be met. And in that sense, the struggle against policing and, and, and mass imprisonment and these other false solutions opens up a door, a doorway to just much more radical and transformative change or seeing the possibility and need of that change on so many other fronts as well. I want to thank everyone uh, being, uh, for being involved today, especially August Nymphs. Uh, for can, many I say, can I just sound like, sound like a broken record? <laughs> and exactly. stress, can I sound like a broken record and stress the importance of jailing the police? The jailing the police. Absolutely. We can't settle for just indictments yeah. here. I mean, the Rodney King situation is one reminder of that. And how to sustain a movement, you know, not only during this period of the trial and as the upsurges come and go. Next week's show here on, on Shelter and Solidarity, it's seven o'clock next Thursday. We will have poets of the rebellion. We will have a, an, a great array of uh, nationally and regionally known radical poets, um, Demetrius Noble, Raymond Nat Turner, a number of other uh, folks from New York, from North Carolina. Please tune in as we get into art, the bring out the arts and culture part of the radical project known as Shelter and Solidarity. Thanks to Johanna Fernandez, August Nimps, Bill Fletcher, uh, Kanishka Chaudaroy, everyone who's on this call right now and who was on here earlier. Thank you to the producers of the show, Seren Mudliar, um, Tim Shear, Linda Liu, 
and uh, to the sponsoring organizations, Labor Press, Hardball Press, Socialism and Democracy, The Journal, many of us write for, and last but not least, Encuentro Cinco, a hub of organizing in downtown Boston. Thank you for being here. Hope to see you next week.